Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by NeuroBloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Eric Gallant. He's a professor of weed ecology at University of Maine. When I say weed, I don't mean marijuana. I mean weeds that grow you know, in various farmlands. So, Eric, thanks for coming. Yeah, glad to be here, Richard. Well, tell me a bit about your uh, research. What are you working on right now? Well, right now, my program is really focused on trying to understand physical weed control. So to those of you that aren't farming, that would be the weeding tools that a farmer or a gardener would use. And so we're trying to understand how do these tools work? So yeah, you take a simple piece of metal or rubber or a spring tine and you drag it through the soil and you try to kill some weeds and you try to not kill your crop. And so we're spending quite a lot of time on this right now. And it's not, I came to this work somewhat indirectly because I've spent almost 20 years working more on really ecological approaches to managing weeds. Okay, so what are the, some of the approaches that are being used right now that seem most efficacious? And then what are, the, some, what are some of the ones that you're researching and contemplating? Yeah, well, so the work that we've done in the past, the context for my work really is organic farming systems. And so if you are a conventional farmer and you have access to really effective herbicides, you're probably not so interested in the more complicated ways of using ecology and multiple stresses to try to manage your weeds. You've got a very simple solution in that herbicide. If you're an organic farmer, on the other hand, and you don't have access to a herbicide, then you're looking for you know, really any sort of tool that you might have in your weed control toolbox. And so some of the most effective ecological strategies that farmers are using today at a small scale are ways to target the weed seed bank. Okay. And so a little jargony, but the seed bank, it, it's kind of an apt metaphor. If you're an annual weed, 
your whole aim in life is to produce a lot of offspring. So produce a lot of seeds, you disperse those seeds, they fall to the soil. And that's uh, the seeds that are on or in the soil, or what we call the seed bank. And from a ecological weed management approach, we aim to try to reduce the amount of seeds that weeds produce. So we do that by encouraging crop competition. And so we know a lot about how to give crops a competitive advantage. We try to change the way we manage fields in the fall of the year so that if we do have weeds go to seed, we don't plow or till or work the soil. We leave those seeds on the soil surface. And we've shown that oh, up to half of those seeds can be consumed by various animals. So granivores, so seed eating birds or beetles, birds or insects and rodents. So various seed bank management practices are really what farmers that are getting ahead of their weed management game, they're doing those sorts of things. But what we ended up finding is that even if you do the best of all of these practices that we do understand to manage your seed bank, if you then come to the spring of the year and you've got a crop coming up and you've got weeds there and you're trying to cultivate it, you're trying to use a tool to remove the weeds, most of our tools today don't work very well. And so we're basically, the most interesting new results there are some evidence that if you take multiple tools that have different designs and you stack them together, so instead of just using one tool, you use two or three, that the stacking of tools can result in much higher levels of weed mortality than we expected. The stacking concept makes sense. When you're ready, can you talk about what that includes? What kind of techniques it would include? Yeah, sure. So the stacking is something that we did. I had a PhD student, Brian Brown, who's now at the New York State IPM and Cornell University. And so Brian basically looked at a sequence of tools. So a tool that we might call a sweep, like a metal pointed piece of metal that you would drag shallow through the soil and then follow that by some rubber fingers that a farmer would call a finger weeder and then follow that by a, oh, a, something that looks kind of like a garden rake uh, and we'd call that a tine weeder and a, a sequence of these sort of multiple ways of or the, the sequence of three different ways of disturbing the soil ended up with a combined level of weed control that was actually synergistic. So it was beyond what we would expect from just additive effects. And so he found that about four years ago, and we've been digging in a lot in recent years to try to figure out like, well, why is that? Is it analogous to herbicides? Do we have different physical weed control modes of action that we're stacking together here? One of our biggest interests is, can we use this to help farmers have yet another tool in the face of uh, changing climate because you know climate change is going to make physical weed control just even that much more difficult so what are the techniques right now what are the particular techniques in the stack and in what order so, would they be used it's not really a prescription thing where we've where we could say that we've picked a particular winner but it would be generally speaking a sequence where you'd have a something that 
something like a sweep or something to sort of break up the soil as close as you can get to the crop row. And then a follow that with a finger weeder or a tine, something that would then break up the that soil and more likely expose those small weed seedlings to, you know, drying soil conditions. They're more likely to die in that kind of the environment. And so, you know, seeing some of these examples or these demonstrations that we've done in the field and, you know, they're starting to, you know, put a certain cultivator on the front of their tractor, for example, and then a different type of cultivator on the back of the tractor. So a way to stack tools with their existing equipment, or they just... Simply what, do you mean? what is a What does a cultivator do? How does it work? Yeah, uh, so... A cultivator would be a a machine or a tool that's designed specifically to control weeds. So typically it's going to be something that is causing very shallow soil disturbance. And you're trying to disturb the soil as close as you can to your crop row without killing your crop. So that's a concept that we would call selectivity. We're trying to selectively kill some plants, but not other plants. And so this stacking of tools is kind of exciting in that regard. And then probably the next most exciting thing would be the use of various camera guidance systems that can recognize the crop row. And so a camera can detect the green pixels at a high density that are the crop row. And so you then have the camera hooked up to a system that can then adjust that cultivator to keep it right on spot so that you have tools working as close to your crop row as possible. Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by NeuroBloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. So can cameras identify weeds? Like if, can you program, you know, if you have a arugula, let's say and you have weeds, can you program in the camera and use LIDAR, let's say to, to say, okay, that's arugula, that's a weed, that's arugula, oh, that's a ab- weed. Absolutely. And that sort of, you know, use of artificial intelligence and, you know, really high computing power is people are incorporating that sort of technology into robotic weeding machines. And that's probably the next area that I think we're going to see the most advances in is automation in these sort of weeding machines. And in that regard, it's really quite interesting because you've got, instead of um, herbicides, for example, a herbicide can only be developed by a certain company, right? A company that has a lot of infrastructure to you know, do the research and development 
and testing and registration to bring a herbicide to market. You know, a couple of real genius engineering kids in a dorm room can make a small weeding robot. So it's a really interesting sort of distribution now of this technology where, oh, I think there's actually, as of January or so, there were some 130 to 150 different robot companies worldwide that actually have commercial machines on farmers' fields. That's a very different model than we've seen in the past with you know, the agrochemical age of, of weed management. And then I guess just the one other comment related to that is that you know, while, you, while you have robots being developed that have oh, you know, anything that an engineer could imagine putting into a robot, so you know, GPS, artificial intelligence to recognize the weed in the crop, every bit of that kind of technology you add adds to the cost and the expense and the size of the batteries and so on. So at the same time, you've got other approaches, I guess, that can be very simple. And one that we actually did some research on a few years ago was called Turtle. And it was developed by one of the co-inventors of the Roomba vacuum cleaner. You know that machine? I've seen him and used him. Yep. Yeah. And so the turtle weeding machine is at the other end of the spectrum, so to speak, from the AI example. So the turtle is the parsimony example. How simple can you make a weeding machine? And so in this case, the turtle has a capacitive sensor on the outside and it random walks around or pseudo random walks around kind of like your Roomba. And when it bumps into something big, it, it assumes that's a crop plant and it stops and turns and goes away. And then it has a similar little capacitor sensor on its belly. And if it runs over something small, it stops, assuming the small thing is a weed and turns on a little weed whacker. And, you know, one of it's pretty cool. I mean, it's not, you know, it's kind of a gardener's tool, not yeah. ready for a farm. Um, it works. What if you turn the concept around and you made a harvester, but a, a weed harvester? Would that do anything? I mean, what if you made a machine that, again, it's a harvester, but its job is to harvest weeds and look at it the opposite way, not hurt the crop, but deliberately look for the weeds and, again, try to harvest them as best you can. Would that do anything or is that an insight at all? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess it just depends what you mean by harvesting. I mean, the the weeding machines were typically trying to remove the weeds when they're fairly small. And there's two reasons for that. One is the small plants are easier to kill than big plants. And number two is, you know, every day that those weeds get larger, you know, depending on where they are next to the crop, is just that much more resources they're taking away from the crop. So the competition effects become more and more intense. You know, that said, the harvesting idea, I I think, could be a really good one in particular for the weeds that you might miss. So, for example, like using your idea, like, oh, what if in the fall of the year you sent out a robot to go harvest the small number of weeds that you missed? Then you could be collecting them before they set seed and you prevent seed rain. And so that could be a very effective technique. You know, so instead of spending all the robot money to try to control 90% of the weeds in the spring, where we have kind of other tools that can already do that, 
you know, pretty well. Have them do the, the part that we, you know, most farmers can't afford to do. Go have them clean up all of the, you know, all of the surviving weeds so that you, you achieve zero seed rain, so to speak. Okay. So anyway, all of that to say, if if I were going to be investing now, I'd put my money in the robots. The problem is just that I just don't know which robot. So for example, there's one in Denmark, I think called FarmDroid that uses a very precise GPS to plant individual sugar beet seeds. And then the robot can come back and start weeding before the sugar beets even emerge because the robot knows exactly where the sugar beet seed was put in the soil. Okay, so that's one set of technology. And then you contrast that with the, you know, sophisticated cameras and recognizing the weeds. And at some point you have to figure out, okay, so the robot can distinguish between a crop and a weed, or it knows that's a weed. It still has to do something to it. You know, so, and there's a whole range of technologies people are doing, ranging from, you know, like, like my, you know, very microliter droplets of a herbicide to a group up in Quebec that's developing little robotic pinchers that, you know, they look like robotic hands almost that are grabbing the plants and pulling them up. Um, so anyway, lots of activity in this area, area, but just not that many that you can tell are going to make it through this early kind of development phase, as it were, for a new technology. So it sounds like a mechanical method with AI and machine vision and all the other stuff could be far superior than to just herbicides. I mean, they'd be more specific, more directive. They wouldn't be a, as much of a pesticide load on the field, et cetera. Is there a way to plant that is different from how planting is typically done? Any geometrical differences? Or arrangement differences that would make it easier to weed a field, but still get the yield you want. Yeah, that's a good question, and and it's and I think it's one that we haven't um, spent enough time actually asking ourselves. I think we tend to be very derivative in our in our thinking about how technology can be used. You know, so we try to adapt these robots to our existing systems rather than asking questions like you're asking, like, oh, what if we totally redesigned the system? Uh, you know, I'll give you an example of a farmer that I work with in Southern Maine. He is very impressed with some of the weeding machines, but you know, asking the question, well, what if we could use them to do things that we've always wanted to do in sustainable agriculture, but can't afford to do? And one example of that is something called intercropping. And so intercropping is growing, you know, it's kind of the traditional corn, bean, and squash, three sisters of Native Americans in this part of the world. Or if you go to other countries where people are growing are doing agriculture primarily for food, you find that they intercrop, they grow two or more crop species in the same place at the same time. And there's a number of reasons, uh, sort of bet hedging and pest management and more efficient use of resources. But we don't do that because we can't, well, because we typically rely on herbicides or we can't afford the labor to go harvest, you know, some something that's going to mature it an earlier time, but robots, for example, mm. they don't really care. So it may be that, you know, we're able to do some things that we've always wanted to do. And that's pretty exciting. That's kind of where I am. I'm personally just, you know, to have a 
robot replace a herbicide? Yes, I think it does a number of things that are good there in terms of reducing pesticide load in the environment, in terms of uh, distributing the kind of control or call that, you know, in terms of, you know, that input is going to be distributed to a lot of other, you know, players in the sector, as opposed to just a couple of large companies. Herbicide resistant weeds, you know, that is a problem in some parts of the, the world. And it, it has, you know, conventional farmers looking at these robots as well, because, oh, they've just my frankly wife, used... Glyphosate is delicious. I love it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, glyphosate is an amazing chemical and, uh, you know, we've, it's so amazing that we've used it until we can't use it anymore in a lot of places. So um, going, going back to this, um, I don't know what you'd call it, but spacing geometry. I even thought of the ground that plants sit on. Is there a way to make hills, you know, tiny little hills or divots so that again, a, a harvester going over or a, a cultivator, as you call it, going over the ground would more easily spot, you know, weeds versus crops. Like I'm sure a ton of effort has been spent on mushing in, compacting in all the potential crops to maximize yield. But again, is anyone looking at geometries and, you know, soil levels and blah, blah, blah to, you know, to make this work better so that you get a balance between weeds and, and crop? Yeah, let's see. In terms of geometry, for a lot of things, we, we know that, sort of a uniform spacing you know, tends to you know give you the greatest crop yield and thus the the lowest weed biomass because the crop is more likely to come up and interact with a weed than it is with another crop plant so um, and you know, it, it may be that having automation, you know, small machines or, or maybe it's large, but machines that could handle that would be facilitated. I, I don't, I think we know that background in terms of the plant biology and the fundamentals of yield and competition. I mean, some, you know, for many crops, we end up having to space them more widely than that in order to manage perhaps diseases depending on the crop. So, so I think we have the, the ecological background um, and I think it'll be more like, okay, well, what are there some of those things that we've discovered in the past that we don't do now that maybe we're going to be able to do with the machines? The other, there is some interesting kind of plant biochemistry stuff that's been going on. A group at UC Davis has been looking at putting different pigmented or fluorescent markers in crop plants to make it even easier for a sensor to see where the crop row is. You know, basically, instead of having to use complicated AI to recognize the crop, it's, it can look for a wavelength showing up on some multispectral sensor. That's related to trying to you know, make physical weed control more effective. Yeah, I think that's the only other question here. You mentioned that, I think you mentioned, did you say weeds associate with other weeds more strongly or intimately than crops? Or do they, Um, what kind of relationship would a weed have with your intended crop? Is there any symbiosis there where the weeds help? Like what is the interchange between weed and crop? What I was mentioning there is just that if you take crop plants and instead of planting them in rows, 
you know, where they're really clumped together in one dimension and then they have space in between the rows. Instead of planting in rows, if you plant in a more uniform grid-like pattern, actually sort of like a staggered grid so that you would have this equidistant between every crop plant, equidistant spacing, a really clever agroecologist named Jake Weiner from the University of Copenhagen did just really beautiful work showing you know that ends up being optimal in, in particular for cereal crops. And so that when a weed a weed's going to come up randomly and it's going to more likely be in a space that a crop can compete against that weed. Whereas if you grow the crop in crowded rows, the crop plants come up and they're intensely competing with each other, which you don't want. And then the weeds can come up between the crop rows. That's kind of just a fundamental spacing sort of phenomena. In terms of beneficial effects of weeds on crops, there are a few that I just don't even know. I use them in class every once in a while. Um, you know, and it's not really that much of a benefit, but you know, the crops can respond to reflected blue light, I think, and it can change then the height of the crop plant. I don't know if, we can, if you'd consider it a benefit, but basically the crop plants can sense that there are weeds there and then change the morphology so it can change, you know, like try to have a competitive advantage. Generally, though, most often, you know, in the context that I'm working in, I'm trying to minimize the density and biomass of weeds because, you know, the, it, it basically... The weed biomass out in a crop field represents resources that could have otherwise gone to your crop plant. I would guess that specific types of weeds tend to grow next to specific crops. And do you get any intelligence from seeing that? Um, Is it explainable or explicable why, you know, weed XYZ would grow next to corn always and weed ABC would grow next to wheat? And is there anything you can do with that realization? Yeah, I mean, we do, we know quite a bit about that. And, you know, I guess just to back up a little bit, if you, if you ask what is a weed, you know, essentially their ecological job, their niche is to colonize a disturbed site. Okay. And so most of our agricultural systems are disturbed sites. And so they're doing, they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. That said, you know, the timing of the disturbance tends to be one of the major drivers for which species are going to be associated at a particular bit of time. So we've done some work, for example, where we go out and we we shallow do shallow soil disturbance every Monday starting in March. Well, if it's dry enough, starting very early and doing it once a week throughout the entire year. So nine months of weekly or bi-weekly soil disturbance. And you can then watch and see over time, you get very different species that are kind of waking up or emerging, having dormancy broken, depending on what time of the year it is. And so that's kind of the weed community's strategy, sort of fill in the entire growing season, you know, from the weeds perspective. So indeed, you're going to have a different dominant weed community with your cool season cereals like a spring wheat crop than you will with a a warm season crop like a corn crop or a later season 
pea or brassica crop. So the, the way that we use that is that, you know, if a farmer has, you know, a particular group of these weeds that's a particular major problem, they may choose to do shallow soil disturbance at the time when that group of plants most wants to germinate. And that once a, a seed is germinated, once it's become a baby plant, it's easy to kill. So they can try to break the dormancy and then you can do another shallow soil disturbance or some flaming to kill those plants. Whereas, you know, when they're seeds, they are, you know, you can't really do anything about them. You know, they're designed to reside in the seed bank. You know, they die slowly over time and a small number get subject to decay or, you know, a small amount of predation once they're buried. But uh, that sort of using tillage to sort of break dormancy is a pretty fundamental ecological approach to managing weed seed banks. What about um, deliberately producing a secondary crop that would maybe hopefully prevent weeds from coming in the first place because they would, you know, be there first and suck up nutrients that the weeds would need? Has anyone contemplated that? Oh, well, I mean, so just you know, one example of that might be uh, what we would call a, a winter cereal. So if you take, for example, wheat comes in a winter type that can be planted in the fall of the year. And so it germinates, it grows into a oh, five leaf stage plant, and then it overwinters in a dormant state. But then as soon as it warms up in the spring, it's able to send out new growth and start growing. So it has a quite a head start. And so typically, if you're, for example, an organic wheat farmer, you don't have weed problems in your winter wheat because your crop has such a head start. Spring wheat, on the other hand, you can't do that. So yeah, in terms of people will try to use either planting strategies or in some cases, cover crops to prevent weeds. But for example, if you were to if you were to plant a, plant something deliberately to cover the ground inside of your corn crop. So, for example, people may put a, a green cover crop of ryegrass to occupy the space in between their corn rows. Well, yeah, that the ryegrass will prevent other weedy species from growing there, but that ryegrass is just because it's not a, you may not consider it a weedy species, it's still taking up resources. And so generally it's going to reduce your crop yield. So it's, there's not any examples I'm aware of where people are kind of displacing things like that. Well, what if you have that ryegrass and then right before the regular plants are going to come up, you grind it all up, till the whole thing and grind the, you know, the, the, the remnants of the plants into the field so that maybe the nutrition goes back and now the, the wheat crop, let's say, can utilize that. Yep. No, and that's that's kind of a, you know, that we would call that kind of a green manuring or a cover cropping strategy. And that's, it's pretty common. Those sorts of things are not uh, uncommon in an organic farming system. Um, you know, the problem or, or the, the situation is that even when you, when you incorporate that material, work it into the soil and then plant your crop, you're still going to have a flush of weeds coming up with the crop plant. So most often what, what people would do in that kind of context is they would still cultivate or use some tools to try to remove weeds 
early to give their corn crop a head start. And then perhaps at the last possible time to cultivate the corn while they were cultivating, meaning while they were dragging some metal tools to control weeds in their corn, they're also spreading some rye grass in front of that. So they're using the tools then to control any final weeds and then work in the ryegrass seed because then by then the corn crop has enough of a competitive head start that rye wouldn't have such a negative impact. Hmm. What about, you know, microbes? Are there are certain microbes that can be added to the soil that are preferential to wheat, but unfavorable to weeds and oh, or great, you know, other pollinators, et cetera. It's a great question. And there is a group doing some work on this. I years ago worked uh, one of my, I think my first USDA competitive grant was related to looking at soil microbes to weed seed decay. So the microbes that would break down weed seeds in the soil. And uh, the hypothesis was that if you improve soil quality, you have more organic matter, more water holding capacity, more microbial activity, more microbial activity, they're going to eat more weed seeds. And oh, it's a, just a beautiful idea. And it just didn't work. <laughs> it taught me early in my career that just because it's your favorite idea does not necessarily mean it's going to pan out. In terms of other examples, there was, I had a colleague there that was at Washington State University who was doing, doing work with pseudomonad bacteria that would infect the roots of uh, certain weeds. And it, they didn't tend to infect the wheat crop, but they infected a grass weed called downy brome. And this group of bacteria just so happened to produce some toxins that stressed out the downy brome. So there's some examples of that. It's just a very, it's a very challenging system to work with. Um, There's some really cool stuff where they show like the soil microbes. um, If you have a, a species that's in its native range, and then you move it to where, you know, move it across boundaries to a place where it's a weedy species that they tend to have different soil microbial communities or, or root microbial communities. And so there's some neat stuff in that. That's getting more into sort of communities, weed communities and natural systems like rangeland and forest and something that I don't really work that much in. So I pretty much exhausted my knowledge of that, but there's some neat stuff in there. Mm, Okay. I guess to go back to an earlier point, no one has seen beneficial interactions between weed and crop. Has that ever happened, but it's so rare? Is it always a judgment? Trying to think of one. It's a good question. And I should don't I can't think of one off the top of my head to be honest. Okay. No, no I mean there's you know I had a colleague at Illinois who did some work with there's a really cool weed called purslane Portulaca oleracea. It kind of looks like a little mini rubber tree plant that grows really flat to the ground and actually as an interesting aside it has the highest concentration of those what is it the linole- alpha linoleic 
fatty acids, some healthy fatty acids, the highest concentration of any plants, as far as my students tell me. Anyway, this colleague was trying to selectively encourage that low-growing weed to be a cover crop, kind of like what you were talking about before. So you'd have this weed growing in between your crop plants. And yeah, it just never really caught on. Kind of a cool idea, but it's just a little bit... Too niche, you know. Gotcha. Also, too, again, I, I probably asked you, well, I'm sure I asked you this, but maybe in a slightly different way. Has anyone come up with complementary crops that could be planted? Let's say if you're doing rows or grid, every other, you know, you do wheat and every other one is something else that grows at the same time. I'm not going to say oh, corn, yeah. but, you know, whatever. Or three, you oh, know, yeah. is, are there Lots two of- crop or three crop fields that are more robust because you have a little bit of diversity in plant type? Versus monocrop, monoculture? That's a pretty well-established principle. And there's actually a term for that beneficial. It's called um, over-yielding. So in the people that do that kind of research, they call that intercropping research. And they calculate how much land would you need to grow the same amount of yield if you grow it as a monoculture versus in the mixture And so when you get this land equivalency ratio above one, it shows you that you're you're basically producing more in a mixture than you could in a monoculture. And there's lots and lots of examples of the mixtures over yielding compared to monocultures because the you know the plants occupy different soil, you know, they take up different soil resources, different times, are more fully capturing all the available sunlight. They tend to have fewer specific pest problems. So lots of those examples. And the reason that weed people like me are interested in them is that if you have crops that are overyielding, if you have intercropping that's overyielding, it usually means that those crop plants are capturing more available resources in that particular space. And if they're doing that, then it's fewer kind of quote unquote, wasted resources that could otherwise go to weeds. And so these mm. over yielding examples typically will have reduced weed biomass and fewer weed problems. So are weeds particularly hardy? Are they like kind of like vultures that can live anywhere or cockroaches that you can't kill? And you know, do they have better abilities than the crops that we plant for some reason? Are they hardier? Are they just more adapted to growing? Like are they better, worse, or what do you think? Well, they're you know they're different. I mean, you know, you want to keep in mind, I guess, two things. One is what their job is, and so they've got to be pretty hardy if they're going to successfully keep our planet covered. So anytime there's a disturbance, you know, whether it's natural or or human caused, you don't see bare earth. It gets covered by something, and so the plants that job it is to cover cover that is the weeds. And I guess the other thing is that many of the crop plants that we've domesticated, you know, at one point were weeds, were part of the natural flora, and so you know, typically the weedy the things that are still weeds are they're going to have different strategies. They're going to produce typically more smaller seeds. They're going to disperse their seeds, whereas, you know, crop plants have to hold on to their seeds. In terms of hardiness, you'll probably, well, oh, here's an example. We know that, for example, many weedy species 
are able to take up luxurious amounts of so that's like uh, nutrients in particular. So if you have weeds infesting a crop and you try to fertilize to remove the competitive effect of the weeds, it's probably not going to work. The weeds are going to take up more of those added nutrients than are the, then will the, will then just intensify competition for another resource, lighter water. They're really interesting plants in terms of their, the strategies that they have, the characteristics that they have that distinguish them from our other plants make them pretty interesting. Okay. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Yeah. So we've got, they could go to my University of Maine Weed Ecology Program website, and they can find me there. My email is uh, my last name, Gallant, G-A-L-L-A-N-D-T, at mainthestate.edu. We've got a pretty cool YouTube channel called Zero Seed Rain, and we've got some videos there. And some of our more recent weed control work is at the forum dot physicalweedcontrol.org. So we're we're in the early stages of building an f- online forum to try to help connect farmers and researchers and manufacturers working uh, on the tools part of this. So okay. Well, there you well go. very good. Excellent. Well thank you for coming on the podcast. And I know it's just a really interesting subject. I don't get to talk to many people about this. So again, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, great. It was fun, Richard. You got me thinking about some new stuff as well. So thanks a lot. Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by NeuroBloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.